0: Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show.
1: Today I'm talking with Nelson. He's known as at Uproar Capital on Twitter. He's a Canadian value investor. I followed him on Twitter for many years and his perspective is unique because of his focus on Canadian value names. He's also only 39 years old and has already retired and achieved financial independence. So welcome to the podcast, Nelson.
0: Well, thank you for having me and of course thank you for those uh, nice words. I'm, I'm uh, glad that you enjoy my Twitter ramblings.
1: <laughs> yeah, they're great. So let's start off. How did you get started in investing and uh, how did you evolve to your current approach?
0: Well, I started out real estate investing actually. So my dad was a big real estate investor. He started, I mean, I can't remember a time in my life when, when my dad didn't have rentals and he just kind of slowly built it up and slowly built it up. And one day, I think I was about 16 and my dad broke his leg actually. And so he's around the house like a lot more than what he was before. And I was worried because it's like, my dad's the only one that works. And, and he was the breadwinner of the family. It's like, how are we going to survive? And I'm working at Dairy Queen at the time. And it's like, do I have to pitch in? Do I have to kind of give money to make sure that we don't uh, starve? And and my dad's like, no, like, we've got these rental properties. And like, they're going to get us through this. And so I was intrigued. And i was kind of like, well, what's going on? Like, like, how do these work? And so I was fortunate that right at the time of my life, when like, I really started taking interest in it, my dad was there to, to really kind of show me uh, exactly how it worked. And so then I started investing in rentals. I was 18, I bought my first, and then I bought two more within the next like two or three years after that. And I would have kept buying, but uh, the values in the small town that I lived in, they doubled basically overnight. There was a big, you know, I live in Alberta and Alberta a big oil wow. economy. And so oil basically spiked at that point. And everyone wanted to get into Alberta and move to Alberta. And that really kind of caused the value of real estate to skyrocket. It was undervalued uh, before then. So I kind of had to start getting into something else. And so that's when I sort of started uh, kind of learning the stock market and kind of looking at it from that perspective. And so I kind of dabbled in it a little bit, uh, sort of in the next kind of few years. And then after 2008 and the crash, I Started putting more money to work and more money to work. And then, probably by about 2012 or 2013, I really started to focus on the stock market. I'd done a little bit of uh, other real estate stuff in the meantime, some private lending, uh, stuff like that. But for the kind of 2013 on, just been all focused on the stock market, uh, you know, really kind of learning my craft and, and sort of evolving the approach and and kind of figuring out what works for me and what doesn't work for me.
1: That's interesting. So, with the real estate market where you live, so I guess that that was due to the lows were due to the low oil prices in the late nineties, and then in the two thousands boomed once oil prices surged.
0: Yeah, so partly that for sure. The other part was that I lived in a small town of about seven thousand people, and the thing about small towns is that there's some fantastic real estate deals at times. Other small towns just doesn't work, but. At that one it was like I mean I'll, I'll tell you that the first house I bought I paid $16,000 for and yeah that was you know wow. 20 years ago or whatever but it's <laughs> like that was the price of a new car back then and wow. it's just nobody wanted these things and when nobody wanted them it was like kind of the first house I bought it's funny that the, there's a good story behind this because I bought the house and of course with my dad's uh encouraging and, and he held my hand through the whole process and I bought it and he's like okay listen like you know, it was renting for, I think, $300 a month at that time. And he's like, the market rent is 350 So you got to go and you got to increase the rent. So here's a letter, I typed it out for you. All you got to do is just like hand it to the uh, tenant and just say, hey, listen, I'm the new owner of the house. You know, like the rent's going up. And- How'd <laughs> <laughs> Yes. So I'm 18. And I'm like, just shaking in my boots. <laughs> and I, I go to it's like, go. it's funny, because I actually kind of, not at the time I didn't know the lady, but like, I kind of knew her afterwards and she never figured out that it was me, like it was just, you know, that memory I'm sure was etched uh, in my uh, mind and not hers. But, uh, you know, I go and I'm like, Hey, I own this house. And she's like, no, you don't. <laughs> and it's like, okay, well the rent's going up. And she says, fuck you. It is. I'll leave first. <laughs> and she, uh, because my dad managed it for me. So she goes and sees them and I guess like has a conversation with them. And yeah, she left. We had to find a new renter, you know, but uh, it all worked out, of course. And uh, like I said, I kind of came to know her uh, later on. Probably about 10 years later, I got a job selling potato chips, and she was one of the employees of one of the stores I would stop at. And, you know, we got to be kind of friendly. And, and you know, I'm thinking to myself, like, there's no way you remember what, what happened, but I remember.
1: <laughs> That's funny. So, if you buy a house for sixteen thousand, then how much were you able to rent it for?
0: Well, like I said, three hundred to start with, and I put it up to three fifty. Gotcha, and when, when the boom kind of happened, you know, it was up to like kind of four hundred or four fifty. But the problem is, of course, when the value of the house goes from sort of like sixteen thousand to like thirty thirty five thousand, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, at four hundred dollars a month, you go from a twenty percent cap rate to a ten percent cap rate. And it's not as intriguing at a 10% cap rate especially back then when you could get like risk-free money for like six
1: percent right and I've written I've read on your blog that you don't really like rental investing anymore that you feel like you said you would be better off if you owned a portfolio of REITs So do you want to elaborate a little bit on kind of your, your changed feelings about rentals and real estate?
0: Yeah so first of all real estate income, real estate investing is not passive. And anyone who says it is, it's just like trying to sell you a real estate, uh, like investing course, like, mm-hmm. like it is not passive, you know, and I had a property manager and my dad is like one of the best property managers I've ever known. He was fantastic. And yet it was still like, Hey, let's go fix this. Let's go fix this. Let's go like do this and whatever. And like, at the end of the day for me, it was like, yeah, I had this property manager, And like we had a quid pro pro because I was managing a stock portfolio, he's managing the real estate, like like it was working out. But it's still active income and it's still something that I would have to worry about. You know, I have to do up the books every year. Mm -hmm. I have to, uh, I need to know what's going on. So I talked to my dad about it. And even though for me, it was really, really hands off, there was still like a certain aspect that was hands on. The other thing for me was that uh, the houses were old and my insurance company was telling me that hey you got to do this upgrade you got to do this upgrade you got to do this upgrade and it's like okay well you know one of them was upgrading the electrical so go from a 60 amp electric panel to a 100 amp electric panel the insurance company wanted it but it was like the house doesn't need 100 amp electricity it's, it's old right. and it's small like it just it just didn't need it but the insurance company said that it needed it so that's kind of the you know upgrades they asked me to do and it's like put thousands and thousands of dollars into a house that I paid sixteen thousand dollars for originally that I rented for four hundred dollars a month for 20 years. You know, it was time at that point to just say, hey, I'm out. And but at the same time, the thing with a REIT is that a REIT, of course, is is a leveraged real estate investment. You know, Mm -hmm. typically it's kind of like a 50-50 kind of split between debt and equity. And so when I bought my real estate, I just bought them and I paid them off. I just like rented them forever. Where a REIT like they're just continually growing, it's a continually growing leverage real estate investment. Mm-hmm. so as long as the underlying real estate market cooperates, that should do better over time than a portfolio of paid off rentals simply because of the leverage that's you know inherent in a, in a REIT.
1: Yeah, that's definitely true. I invest in REITs through DTFs, I own like VNq and I use reET. And the thing I like to say about them is, well, they don't call me at three o'clock in the morning, (laughs) something to get fixed. And in addition, I think they'll perform better over the long run. So I'm in agreement with you.
0: Yeah, that's it. And I mean, I tweeted about this uh, one day where it's like, everyone talks about the 2am bathroom emergency in real estate. And Mm. my family's been in real estate forever. And we've never gotten a call. I've never gotten a call. My dad's never gotten a call at two in the morning being like, my toilet's backed up, come fix Ah, it. Because- Like, who's going to the bathroom at 2 in the morning? But saying that, um, we have gotten calls uh, about furnaces going down at 2 in the morning. And in Canada, when it's minus 20 or minus 30 Celsius and your furnace goes down, like, that is an emergency. So that has happened to give those people uh, some credit. And I have to say, you know, I tweeted that. And in the replies, people are saying, like, I know someone whose tenants phone them every month at 2 in the morning. And it's like, (laughs) get those tenants out of there then. Like, it's not that hard.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that that makes sense. Yeah, it's probably a lot of it is exaggerated, but uh, it does seem like a lot of work. It does seem like a full-time job.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a part-time job. And I, you know, really, really got to the point where it's like, hey, I value my leisure time, you know, kind of value and it, it's not so much a leisure time it's just that thing in the back of my head that was like hey there's something that i gotta worry about here because i'm ultimately responsible i own the house and i'm ultimately responsible for it. And what happens you know i can't just like say hey my property manager did it like that's not the way it works and so that was it for me it was like i was ultimately responsible and i didn't really like that
1: feeling gotcha so eventually you moved on to stocks and uh, mm-hmm. you, said you started around 2013. So what was your initial style of investing and then how did that evolve over the years?
0: So my my initial style was a, again, I, you know, I dabbled in it a little bit before 2013, but that was cool when I really started getting serious about it mm-hmm. and it was deep value contrarian investing. And of course, very similar to uh, what you were dabbling into, sort of maybe not at the time, but you know when I first kind of started following you, anyway. And it was just like just the trashiest trash that <laughs> you could ever find, but it was cheap. And you know, I looked at like like it was it was just price to earnings and price to book value, and it was like, hey, look how cheap this is compared to kind of X. And, oh, wow, it could only get like trading at two times earnings. Wow, if it only trades at 10 times earnings, it's a five, five X. Meanwhile, it's like earnings quality is just deteriorating. It's like it's never going to even maintain the level of earnings it has, never mind uh, grow them. So I got involved in a lot of just trash. <laughs> and just enough of it worked out that I was encouraged uh, for at least a couple of years before I... Uh, kind of started to evolve into I say a couple of years, probably like three or four years. I remember in twenty fifteen, I bought a coal company, Cloud Peak Energy. And it was like, man, if the price of coal goes up, like this thing's trading at like one or two times earnings. And then Trump won and all the <laughs> coal stocks surged because he was going to like save coal mine. And mm-hmm. I sold. I was fortunate enough to like realize well, yeah, this is my exit point. And I sold my like tripled my money or quadrupled my money or something like just something stupid and you know it's like just stuff like that that just those occasional wins would keep me in kind of into a strategy that i should have given up on much quicker than what i did
1: yeah it took me about 15 i did about 15 years worth of deep value investing so
0: (laughs) well i mean when i dabbled in it i i definitely dabbled in uh in that like you know it took me probably 10 years, but kind of like three or four years of serious sort of going in it before I figured it out.
1: Yeah, for me, I mean, there were, I had enough good years where for a long time I was uh, convinced that this is the only way to do it. But the thing with that strategy is I feel like you're so beholden to macro outcomes that aren't really predictable. And you don't really appreciate that when you're reading like the intelligent investor and they're saying buy cheap and good things will happen. Well, yeah, but you kind of need the economy. If you're investing in a bunch of net nets in 2009, for instance, like I did okay investing in some really cheap stocks, but Mm -hmm. it was because the economy turned around. If the economy didn't turn around, I would have got my face ripped off. (laughs) And there's a lot of little things like that where you're really beholden to those macro outcomes. And part of the reason I moved on from it was because I didn't want to be so beholden to that.
0: And, you know, for me too, it was, I mean, I'll say something controversial here. I've said on Twitter before. I think the intelligent investor is not a very good kind of investing how-to book. It's like in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and, and the 80s, like, sure, like, but it's like the outcome of buying a net net and having it, like, get up to intrinsic value is mm. fine. And if you can repeat it without, like, stumbling too badly, you're okay. But, you know, compare that to buying like a, and I hate the word term compounder too, but like buy a compounder and, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of grows at 15 to 20% a year for 10, 20, 30 years or whatever. And that outcome is just so much more powerful because of the power of compound interest behind you versus basically net nets and trying to like get a bunch of consecutive coin flips right. Because at the end of the day, like I have never found a net net that didn't have like, Serious warts, like mm-hmm. serious warts, and right. there's a bunch of them that just like they just succumb to their fate, which is zero.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think Buffett describes it best when he's talking about cigar butts. Like you know that this thing is a melting ice cube; it's falling apart. And what you're counting on and hoping on is that some whiff of good news will come along, and you'll get a little pop, and then you have to sell mm-hmm. and move on to the next thing, which is kind of a challenging way to invest, in my opinion.
0: I think it is for sure. And like I said, you know, the outcome of that is a series of successive coin flips. And for whatever reason, I just didn't have the ability to get more than about 40% of them right. I don't know whether it was like, like I was just picking the cheapest one. And therefore, like the cheapest ones are always the trashiest ones, or at least they were in my opinion. Or whether I was like, just bad at it or, you know, whatever. But uh, I was poor at it. And I would have been much better off. I'd never sort of figured out the uh, deep value investing.
1: <laughs> yeah and i also agree with what you said earlier about the quality of the net nets like today i really think it's hard to find a net net that isn't in serious distress and i don't think that was necessarily the case in buffett's day back in the 50s like if you read about stocks he bought back then he was talking about buying like a stable insurance company at a p of one like that is not a yeah stock you can find in 2023
0: exactly right it's like you know if a net net is profitable like that's a big get and usually it's like yeah it's profitable but it the market has the expectation that it never will be again. And again, those are very, very rare. At least I don't even pay attention to net nets anymore. Sometimes I'll stumble upon someone on Twitter who will say like, oh, there's this number of net nets. And the only thing that I kind of, the only reason why I look at them now is to say like, hey, there's 100 net nets. There's usually an average of like 20. Oh, that tells me that stocks are probably pretty cheap.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I use similar metrics. So I'll run screens and I'll see how many net nets are out there, how many stocks are out there with an EV but multiple below five. And I Mm -hmm. agree, when you see that search, that's usually a pretty good indication that the environment is pretty nice. So you moved on from net nets. So what's the typical kind of stock you would buy today?
0: I kind of call myself a a recovering value investor because it's like, I'm still sucked into those like and like it's not like net net cheap because those are just like as a trash, but it's kind of like that next level above where it's like there's a reit or whatever that has a bunch of assets the market doesn't like, and it's like you you know like that's cheap I like that, and so I kind of get sucked into those situations every now and again, but I really try to focus on quality, and I want to find kind of underfollowed Canadian dividend stocks. They have to be dividend stocks because I live off my dividends. And I'm just looking to find quality Canadian dividend stocks, ideally, you know, kind of undervalued and underloved, but they don't have to be, you know, like I've got, there's kind of 10 Canadian dividend stocks that everyone loves. And I own about eight of them. Like it's not uh, not being contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. I'm just trying to fill out my portfolio with, you know, sort of reasonably valued, high quality, underfollowed followed stocks that uh, I think I can hold for a long time that should pay Consistently increasing dividends because they have the kind of high quality businesses that allow them to steadily increase earnings. Because ultimately, as you know, an increase in dividend just comes from increasing earnings. So that's what I'm looking for is just high quality, highly predictable, can't really be disrupted, boring, underfollowed stocks that I think uh, should perform relatively well.
1: And how do you define quality? That's a Always a good question. The first question
0: I ask myself is Is this a good business or not? And it's not just like, how do you define a good business? And you know, I'll get into that kind of in a minute, but it's like, that like kind of like first instinct of, you know, it's like, okay, is gold mining a good business? Well, no, because it's beholden to a commodity price. Right. And is, you know, retail a good business? Well, no. And I mean, I was in retail for a long time. It's not a good business. So it's kind of like the first question I ask myself. And then it's kind of like, okay, so what am I looking for in terms of like kind of qualities? Well, I want something that high returns on capital, high returns on equity. I want something that that sort of is steadily growing uh, both revenue and earnings over time. It doesn't have to be like every year consistent. It can be lumpy. I don't mind, but I want something that's kind of growing profits and is growing revenue over time. I want something with high gross margins and kind of like reasonably high operating margins because when inevitably the shit hits the fan, those are the kind of companies that can stay profitable because I want them to ultimately generate lots of free cash flow because that's where the earnings for dividends come from.
1: Yeah, I I agree with you. So I, I think of it in the same way. So you want high returns on capital, you want steady growing earnings, you want some recession resistance in there. So yeah, I completely agree with that approach. So that's... Quality now in terms of valuation, do you have any strict rules about valuation or are you more open to buying stocks different valuation multiples?
0: Yeah, that one's a little bit tougher because it's like if I've identified what I think is a high quality business, mm-hmm. why should it trade at a like below market valuation? Or why should it trade at, like even a cheap valuation? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of as I've evolved, I've started to realize where it's like, if I've identified something that's sort of like like high quality, and it trades at sort of like this really cheap multiple, it's like, what did I get wrong? Because obviously, the market doesn't agree with with my opinion. And sometimes you can it's like, hey, I'm comfortable with this that and I'll buy some but most of the time, it's kind of like, hey, wait a minute, like, what did I get wrong here? And then it sort of falls back into that value bucket where I still kind of dabble periodically, but I probably shouldn't. So <laughs> but in terms of like valuation, like I'm happy to pay up for what I think is a kind of a reasonably, like a good company, but at the same time, like it's gotta be reasonable. So the first thing I look at is kind of like market valuation and All right. you know, like, is it above that? Is it below that kind of like, what is the kind of like, what is it compared to the market? And then I sort of go from there, but valuation is a lot harder than kind of quality. It's kind of like an old expression of like, you don't have to know how much a man weighs, know that he's fat. And <laughs> you know, like quality is, is very much like, you know, Hey, this is good. Or, you know, this is, this is kind of solid where valuation is like, that's kind of where the art of, of it comes in, where it's like, Hey, if the quality is good enough, then the valuation doesn't really matter. But I'm like you where it's like, I'm patient and I wait. And it's like, Hey, this is a kind of a good quality stock. I'm going to wait for the valuation to make sense versus just like running out and buying it. Cause I think it's like high quality.
1: Yeah. And I think that gives you a couple ways to win, you know, you, you have, um, the opportunity to make some money through some multiple expansion. And at Mm -hmm. the same time, even if you get the valuation a bit wrong, usually when, unless you're paying like ridiculous multiples for these quality companies, usually if you're paying a reasonable valuation over time, you should still do okay.
0: Yeah, that's it. And I mean, if there's like a stock that I think is sort of a high quality stock and it gets down to that like kind of market valuation, then it's like, you know, I think over time I'm going to do just fine
1: uh, with that. Yeah, I totally agree. And yeah, a lot of times I look at some of these high-quality companies. Like company I, I was looking at recently was S P Global, which I think is probably one of the best businesses in the world. What is the right multiple to pay for S P Global? I'm not sure, but I think if you pay five percent free cash yield, you'll probably make out okay over the long run. Yeah, no, no, for sure.
0: And I mean, at least when you're going with quality companies, is that you know they're going to grow earnings over time, and you know that uh, they should kind of grow into their valuation. And so you kind of get bailed out that way too. Right.
1: And I mean, another thing, another way I look at it is like, I think that if you are investing in stocks, it's kind of foolish to think that if a stock has never generated a return over like a 10, 20, 30 year period, that you're going to be able to squeeze a return out of it by trading it correctly. <laughs> I don't just a lot of times what you're doing with the deep value stuff, you're like, yeah, this company has not made any money for anybody, but I'm going to buy it low and then I'm going to sell it a little bit higher and I'm going to be the one who has this figured out. <laughs> that, that's exactly it. It goes from 20 to two
0: and then you're like, I'll sell it four. And right. It's like, yeah, but it's going to go to one. Like, and <laughs> of course, and like I said before, the problem with value investing is that it works out just often enough that
1: uh, kind of feel it. So I know you also look for dividend growers. So what appeals to you about companies that can steadily increase dividends?
0: Well, one is, like I said, dividends come from free cash flow. And so companies that are increasing dividends are increasing free cash flow. And that's exactly what I want to see as an investor is a company that is growing the bottom line. So that's one. Two is that when you live on your dividends and you're kind of like, you know, looking at inflation and things are going up, you kind of say to yourself, hey, like, I I need to make sure that that purchasing power kind of goes up over time, because my bills tend to go up over time. So that's, you know, ideally, the the kind of the two things that that I want to see, or the two reasons why I want to see dividend growth, because it's just it's important to me, because without it, I could starve and that's the only thing that keeps me up at night gotcha
1: so i saw i think it was a tweet once where you talked about how academics really don't understand how dividend growth investing works like they'll often go off against it like it's a terrible investment strategy what would be your response to them
0: well so of course the the academic kind of theory is that you could always just sell shares to kind of create your own dividend Mm -hmm. And over time, it works, because the stock market tends to go up. And it's like, I agree that in a controlled academic environment, yeah, it works. But the problem is, is that in real life, where if I'm retired in March 2020, and all my stocks are down like 30% in a month, and it's I'm going to start taking away from the portfolio in the exact time that I shouldn't take out of the portfolio, like that doesn't make any sense to me. And you can argue that it works out over time, is that like sometimes you're going to sell when things are overvalued, sometimes you're going to sell when things are undervalued. But the other thing is that I'm creating a taxable event every time that I sell. And it's like, yes, dividends are taxable as well, but at least there's some predictability to dividends. And at least there's, uh, I know that I'm going to get dividends in my, in my calendar a month. So I think that like academically... A lot of it makes sense, and I'm the first to agree with like, yeah, academically it makes sense, but in the real world, it's just like, hey, there's a reason why investors insist on dividends and why they want those kind of steady payments into their uh, into their account. And at the end of the day, too, if dividends aren't paid and the cash just accumulates on corporate balance sheets, I think managers end up kind of being more stupid and more often with that money and. They will pursue acquisitions that don't really make sense. They will pursue like other stuff and, and, or buy back shares when, when the shares are overvalued or whatever. I don't exactly trust management a lot of the time with the money. I'd rather see it's like, hey, you know, like I'll take a certain percentage of it and then you're kind of free to do with the, the rest what you please, but at least give me a certain percentage of it. And every company sort of has a different kind of uh, uh, philosophy with that. And at least with dividend stocks, I can self-select to say, hey, I think that you're good stewards of capital, so I'll take smaller dividend versus you're kind of a either a poor steward of capital or you just don't have the opportunities. So, hey, I want most of the money back.
1: Right. And it must help you psychologically when you are looking at a market downturn and you see that most of these companies are still paying the exact same dividend. I mean, even in 2009, most of these dividend aristocrat kind of stocks, Mm -hmm. they still kept paying the same dividends. That, That has to help, right?
0: Yeah, for sure. And that's definitely something that I look at when I invest now is like, what happened to this stock in 2009 what happened to the stock in in 2020 2020 is a little bit different because it's like a lot of companies panicked and were like hey we don't know what's going to happen we'd better just sort of stop dividends for a little while and that's in hindsight yeah you know like it wasn't really as bad as the kind of what needed to or what sort of how they reacted to it but at the same time it's like i understand why they were doing it like i mean that was not long ago i remember we were all pretty worried but uh, I definitely look at kind of how a company has gone through sort of downturns before and like, okay, what happened, you know, the last time that uh, kind of interest rate spike, because that's, of course, you know, a lot of my dividend stocks of, you know, like kind of fourth quarter last year, that was the big uh, third and fourth quarter last year. That was a big concern was that interest rates are going up. And it's like, okay, well, you take a look at the stock. And he say okay, like, how is it, how did it do last time interest rates went up, which was kind of like that, 2017 2018 sort of period and uh you know kind of how did it react like i said during 2020 2009 you know even back to like 2001 2002 uh, for a lot of these stocks and and for the most part my portfolio is filled with companies that just kept on chugging
1: yeah and that has to say something about the quality of the business too right when they can just consistently pay and increase dividends over time
0: yeah that's it and all I'm looking for is, is a company that's resilient and that increases earnings over time. And if that translates into kind of annual dividend increases, like most of my portfolio is that, then then great. But at the same time, it's like, I do have stocks that have a little bit lumpier of, of dividend increases where it's like they might keep it the same for a couple of years and then increase. and then, But at the end of the day, it's like, that's kind of, I'm just looking for growth in the bottom line. And I know that that translates into dividend growth over
1: time. Gotcha. Now, how many stocks do you typically own at a given time? How do you think about position sizing and portfolio construction?
0: I've got right now between 50 to 60 stocks, and my largest position is probably about 4% of the portfolio. Now, I diversify widely because when I kind of first started, you know, really taking this seriously in 2013, I had a portfolio of about six different names. And I think, like, four of them just, like, kind of bad things happened to them. There was an oil stock that, which, of course, that would be more like 2015, because oil was doing pretty well in 2013. But I had an oil stock that uh, sort of, well, oil went down, and it went down with it. I had, uh, it was called Amia. Well, Amia is still around, but Amia uh, had the AeroPlan, which is a big uh, loyalty program here in Canada uh, for Air Canada. And they were part of Air Canada. Air Canada spun them out. And then uh AMIA ran this program for Air Canada. And it was all fine and good until one day Air Canada said, Hey, we're not gonna renew the your license. We're gonna take it back in house. Uh-huh. Sorry about your luck. And the stock went down fifty percent overnight. And it, it was funny because actually I didn't learn I doubled down. I bought the preferred shares and actually made enough on the preferred shares to kind of make up for some of my losses on the common share. But yeah, so that you know, it was bit of a you know kind of silver lining there but the anyway the point is is that i concentrated it didn't end up well for me i learned my lesson and now i diversify widely because if one stock cuts its dividend i'm not out of luck you know it's i just kind of yeah. oh that's a you know 1% decrease in my dividend income and i move on
1: right yeah that makes sense yeah i think everybody starts off ready to be super concentrated And some people are good at it. Some people can have good experiences, but based on what I've seen in investing in stocks, I think going down to like five positions is is pretty risky.
0: What I've seen on, I'm thinking of some people who, you know, kind of prominent Twitter people who shall, of course, remain nameless. And, and they, you know, I I see like four positions, three positions, five positions, like no, no cash, you know, just like 20% in this and 20% in this. And, and it, you know, it's like, I kind of, shudder that they're, it's like, oh, like, like, how do you do that? And then of course you realize where it's like, okay, well, if you're 25, you, you know, you're just starting out, you just graduated yeah. college and you know, it's like, you're saving and you're working and you're trying to get ahead. It's like, it's not the end of the world. If you implode versus when you're 39 and you're it's like, Hey, like, this is it. Like, I'm not, you know, I only got one shot at this and I'm not going to blow up. Then it's a very bad thing for me to, to have one of my five positions go down you know 50 percent where if you got like twenty thousand dollars invested and you know you got one of your five positions that go down uh fifty percent it's not as big a deal you you know can dig yourself out of that hole in a few months
1: yeah and i mean when I started when I was like I when I was in my early 20s i would do things like invest in two or three stocks stuff like that and now I'm to the point where well i want to have etfs with thousands of stocks in them I want to have some treasuries so I want to have some international (laughs) diversification so my yeah my attitude has definitely changed pretty significantly on that over the years Mm -hmm. yeah i can i can relate concentration is definitely a a young man's game (laughs) that's it and i used to get upset
0: about it or i used to i really get upset kind of like what are you doing you know like kid i've learned like don't do it (laughs) but then you kind of realize it's like okay like they're just starting out they have to uh like hey i learned that lesson the hard way you know maybe they have to learn that lesson the hard way
1: too yeah that's true So I think we can talk about some individual stocks that you've written up recently that I thought were pretty interesting. One idea I thought was pretty interesting was Fortis. Do you want to talk a little bit about Fortis? So Fortis
0: is like the OG of dividend growth stocks in in Canada. It started out as like Newfoundland power, back before Newfoundland wasn't even part of Canada. Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of like just steadily grown over the years they have really high quality conservative management that just kind of like says, Hey, we want to keep growing this thing, but we don't want to do anything stupid. So they just kind of like, they went from Newfoundland to Ontario, to Alberta, to BC, these are all Canadian provinces for your American listeners. And they just sort of like slowly expanded across Canada, buying assets when, you know, sort of like advantageous to do so. And then they kind of their sites in the US and and they've made a couple of sort of good sized US acquisitions. They buy them, of course, have to issue a bunch of debt and and kind of new equity to do so. And then they kind of shore up the balance sheet and then they do the process again and then they shore up the balance sheet. So these are just like good, high quality, conservative management just make the big smart investments and have made smart investments for, you know, decades upon decades now. And uh, it's just this kind of boring, steady, Dividend payer that I think is just a good stalwart in anyone's portfolio.
1: Cool. And another one you wrote about was Dollarama. So that's those are dollar stores. You want to talk a little bit about that business?
0: Sure. So of course I come from the retail background, like I said, and I didn't really appreciate the value of Dollarama up until kind of a few years ago. And you know, I'm in Dollarama, all of a sudden, like I'm, I'm kind of looking around. It's like you know why don't these guys carry, like, kind of staple, like, I can't remember wh- which item it was at the time, but it's like, they should carry this item, and it's like, well, no, like, they don't make any money on that, and what I've kind of realized with Dollarama is that the stores are this perfect size where it's like, they're big enough that you can sort of, like, get this illusion of choice, but they're small enough, where, where and they're disciplined enough, where Dollarama says, hey, if we don't make a 40% gross margin on anything, we just don't carry it, and right. You compare that to a grocery store, which has like kind of 25 points of uh, sort of gross margin. It's like, okay, this is like, they're doing something right here. Because, yeah. you know, for every dollar that they sell, like they're making 15 points of extra margin versus, you know, kind of their their competitors. So that was the, kind of the big thing with Dollarama that sort of attracted me to that. And then you combine that with the fact that they're sort of growing the business by, you know, kind of 3 to 5% a year in terms of new store growth. And then you've got same-store growth on top of that because they just kind of, you know, pass through price increases. So you put all that together, like these, you know, just high margins, high returns on capital, like one Dollarama store pays for itself in like two to three years. So just the economics of the business are fantastic. And not only are they expanding, you know, in Canada, where there's about $1,500 in Canada. And I think there's like, you know, if... Canada had the same penetration of dollar stores as the United States has penetrations of, do- of dollar stores. There's room for like another $2,000 amas or something. Like it's just crazy how big the market is. And they've expanded into Central America with the acquisition of a chain called Dollar City. So they're kind of repeating the, the growth in Canada in Central America and South America. I think Dollar City has about a couple hundred locations at this point. It's not kind of huge, but... Uh, There's that sort of growth market there that I think that they can do the sort of the same thing that they've done in in Canada. The other thing with Dollarama is that, uh, of course, Dollar Tree, Dollar General, they've sort of expanded into these kind of small American towns of like 1,000 people, 2,000 people. And Dollarama really hasn't done that in Canada yet. You know, like the town I grew up in was 6,000 people. Yeah, it has a Dollarama. But I'm thinking of like the sort of some of the kind of surrounding small towns of like 3,000, 4,000 people. And they don't have Dollaramas yet. So I think that that's another kind of untapped market that Dollarama can can hit. Um, so I don't like retail as a rule, but Dollarama is probably the best retail stock in Canada.
1: Wow. And yeah, I like the comparison with... Uh, bigger stores like grocery stores because if you go to a grocery store and they don't have something you need that will piss you off but no one's going to go to a dollar store and get pissed off if they don't have something they're looking for you're like well i'm in a dollar store that's what i expect <laughs> <laughs> well that and of course dollarama switches things up sort of often
0: enough that uh, it's not really that big of a deal where it's like hey you know there's a brand used to buy dollarama and now i don't buy that brand anymore because uh we used to buy a, a certain cat treat brand for our cat and, and a Dollarama got rid of it and they replaced it with another one because they made more money, obviously, on this mm-hmm. on this uh, other one. The other thing to a Dollarama is they're at the point now where they can go to suppliers and they can say, "Hey, there's fifteen hundred uh, Dollaramas in Canada, and we have like a four foot cat food cat treat section. How would you like to be like eighty percent of that space?" And that's very attractive to a uh, to a supplier, like yeah. very attractive.
1: Yeah, definitely. And yeah, the comparison to Dollar General is interesting. Like, I didn't know that they hadn't moved into small towns in the way that Dollar General has, because that's been a major source of their growth is basically going where the Walmarts of the world aren't, and then mm-hmm. their main retail operation in town.
0: Morgan Housel uh, tweeted one day that uh, Dollar General had like 30 or 32% uh, gross margins. And I replied, and I was like, you should check out Dollarama if you're impressed, because uh, that's not really that exciting and dollarama has in fact they've increased their uh margin over the years it's kind of like hunt around at 40 and now it's kind of like 43 44 and i'm not kind of sort of uh kind of holding on or like like i don't think that they'll maintain that but i think they can maintain 40 and if they can maintain 44 then that's just a bonus but i'm thinking it goes back down to 40 but they're really really smart uh Operators.
1: Yeah, those are like SaaS margins. <laughs> and it, they probably, the, the other nice thing about it is Wall Street probably doesn't completely appreciate that because I would imagine most guys on Wall Street aren't going to dollar stores. Well,
0: so that's the other thing about Dollarama is like, you know, I've been to uh, US dollar stores and mm-hmm. it's like they're not sort of, I'm trying to like kind of be diplomatic here, but uh, they seem <laughs> a little bit ran down and it seems like the clientele aren't very uh, wealthy, where in huh? Canada, like everyone goes to dollarama like like you're not slumming at the dollar store it's like hey ah. let's go to dollarama and kind of like you know see what fun junk they have and you walk out of there like with 20 bucks worth of stuff that you're just gonna use twice and throw away because the quality's not there but you don't really care because it's cheap so right. no, everyone in canada like goes to dollarama it's not really just a you know, dollar stores aren't just for underprivileged people uh, up here gotcha cool
1: So that sounds like a great business. I'll definitely have to dig more into that. I've been looking at Dollar General recently, but I'll have to add Dollarama to the list of stocks to look at.
0: And, of course, the problem with Dollarama is about 27 times uh, earnings, which then you get to that point where it's like, well, how much is too much? Mm. And, you know, but I bought it. It's about once every kind of three to five years, they stumble on the growth plans. And the stock just craters like 30%, 40%. And that's the time to buy.
1: Okay. I'll wait for that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so another one I thought that was pretty interesting was the artist reIT. Do you want to talk a little bit about that one? So
0: when I call myself kind of like, like a recovering value investor, part of my kryptonite is these cheap REITs that trade at like these huge discounts to net asset value. So artist right now is about 8 bucks a share. And last I looked, net asset value was like seventeen fifty or eighteen bucks. So trades are like forty percent of net asset value. Wow! And so you know, your first thought should be, well, what's wrong with it? And <laughs> the answer is, there's kind of there's a few things wrong with it. Uh, one is that it's a diversified REIT, so it holds residential, office of course nobody likes office, right? And a little bit of industrial, and they're building uh, some residential towers, but that's a small part of their business. Uh, so basically, just like it's mostly residential and office, sorry, sort of mostly retail and office, not residential. And the market doesn't mind retail. It hates office, it likes industrial, but you put it all together and the market's just like, what am I getting with artists? Just like a bunch of crap kind of sort of put together that previous management was kind of like, hey, like, let's just buy some stuff. And it's like, like they're headquartered in Winnipeg, but they have kind of like stuff all across Canada. And then they've like went into the U.S., and then they went further into the U.S. So it's like Minneapolis and Denver and like Phoenix. And and it was just sort of a mishmash of, of assets. So that's, that was one. Two was that the, the former management didn't hold any stock and was just kind of like in it to just sort of collect a paycheck. And they were compensated based on how big the REIT got. So, of course, they're going to keep buying stuff. They're going to keep buying stuff. So then you have this new guy come in, Samir Manji. And Samir has this uh, history of taking kind of undervalued real estate and sort of like fixing it up as in like selling the stuff that nobody wants and just kind of like taking the rest of it and kind of like selling it back to a a suitor. So basically creating value by, you know, kind of like splitting up these, these assets. So Samir comes in, he buys enough artists to take control. He's kind of like starts this process of sort of selling off basically whatever he can get sort of like fair value for. And so he starts selling and he's selling and he's selling and he sells off maybe like 20, 25% of the portfolio. Uh, a lot of the U S assets he's, he's been selling off. And then he just kind of like takes that money and is using it to buy back shares. And that's sort of the, the whole strategy is that he keeps taking the money and he keeps buying back shares. And what He's saying what he's found is that that we can take these assets that the market thinks are worth 50% of net asset value and sell for just about net asset value to a more kind of focused buyer. And we can take that kind of take that difference and pocket it and then give it back to shareholders in the in the form of share buybacks. So I like the strategy and I like that it was incredibly cheap and they're doing the right thing. But the problem was, a couple problems. One was that it got kicked out of the TSX composite, which means that a lot of the, because it's shrinking, right? Like it's selling right. off these assets. So a lot of the index funds said, hey, we can't own you anymore because you're out of the TSX composite. And we tracked the TSX composite. So there's mm-hmm. some selling pressure there. The things thing, Samir kind of like, I don't know if he has ADHD or something uh, or what, but he, he decided he was going to take some of artist's money and a bunch of his own money and kind of go after another REIT called First Capital. Uh, and Like he doesn't he have like, enough problems. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, and artist shareholders were like, what are you doing? Like, just focus on artists. Like, don't worry about, like, turn that around and then go find, like, a new project. Yeah, yeah. But he, he was kind of going after that one, and they ended up signing a sort of, like, uh, agreement where it was like, okay, like, we'll sort of do some things that you want, and then he sold. And, and so now he's back focused on artists again. Which is good, but the uh, market really didn't like when he got distracted there. And to be honest, I really didn't like when he got distracted there either. But artists is in March, the stock sold off because of the pressure of the index funds uh, selling it. And to their credit, they bought back a lot of shares in March. And Manji, uh, he bought a couple hundred thousand shares of his own. So he, he paid, you know, one and a half, two million dollars of his own money to kind of increase his position in in artists as well. So they're doing the right things now. It's just a matter of uh, being able to continue the strategy. And if it doesn't start working out, then it's whether they take the company private or they do kind of whatever, like there's a few different levers they can pull. The market's getting impatient. They got to do something here uh, relatively
1: quick. Yeah, and it sounds like you have a management that would possibly, that would be willing to do some of those things. So that's that's a plus. And then I also like the fact that the indexes were forced to sell it. Whenever you have four sellers, that's always mm-hmm. a good opportunity to pick something up at a bargain. So yeah, it sounds like a pretty yeah. interesting idea.
0: Yeah, I think you and I we're, were talking the other day a little bit on Twitter about kind of some of the parts uh, sort <laughs> of analysis. And yeah. you know, I, I think we both agree where it's like they just don't usually work. And this one's kind of a sum of the parts analysis, but at least you have management saying like, Hey, we're willing to sell anything like, you know, if we can get a good value for something, we're going to sell it. Like that's the whole plan versus, you know, you've got like some company with a bunch of kind of sort of, well, like Melcor. I talked about Melcor and melcor has got like sort of a bunch of related real estatey stuff that trades at like this big discount for the sum of the parts. And it's like, yeah, but there's no way to crystallize any of that. Melcor hasn't come out and said, we're going to sell this. If it gets right. like, we can get fair value for this. We're going to sell it. It's just like, no, we're just going to hold on to it because like we like it. And it's like, well, if management isn't willing to do, do what it takes to crystallize value, then your sum of the parts analysis is useless. One. And two is that most of the time in those, sum of the parts analysis you get, like hey this is like you get this for free and it's like yeah it's not even worth zero like it's a it's a negative draw on the company <laughs> yeah it's worth negative money like just get rid of it but they don't because it's like oh it's free
1: like, yeah no it's
0: trash get rid of
1: it some free uh nuclear toxic waste do you so with this stock do you worry at all about the commercial real estate side of things so you know i guess right now, there's the shift to work from home. Do you think that's going to continue? And do you think that's going to continue to hurt commercial real estate? Or do you not really care or have an opinion about that?
0: I mean, well, my my opinion is that uh, a good recession is just going to Kind of just obliterate the work from home thesis, where it's like, <laughs> like right now you're an employee, you have the power. It's like, hey, I'm not working from, uh, you know, like I'm not coming to the office. Like, well, yeah. we can't really replace you right now. So, all right, you right, we're going to allow you to work from home. And like, employees don't usually have the power, so good for people who are able to, you know, sort of negotiate that. But uh, you know, a good recession is just going to be like, hey, like, you know, we had ten guys come and apply for your job uh, yesterday. Like, come to the office today, and if you don't like it, like. Too bad. So I think that that's the thing that kind of, uh, you know, sort of obliterates that work from home thesis. But of course, like, when does the recession happen? Like, nobody knows. And, and you know, does the recession hit office workers, uh, you know, as bad as what uh, it hits, like, you know, maybe blue collar workers? Like, I don't know. Like, it, it would seem to be like kind of like, you know, there's a bit of a recession and in, in, in kind of white collar work right now. But blue collar work, it's like, like, try getting a plumber to your house. Like, it's just impossible. Like those yeah. guys are just ran off their feet. But uh, I think that some of the office space is probably, you know, like not artists, just like in general, like some of it's a zero, but artists at least has a, a solid enough balance sheet and they should be able to get kind of some value out of their office space. But even if the office space is worth zero, artists still trades like a 20% discount to uh, NAD. And That's and I do. I think the office space is worth zero. No, do I think that it's worth probably as much as NAB? Also, no, you know, the answer is somewhere in the middle, and uh, I don't have the exact answer, but I know that there's enough margin of safety there that I it's going to work out okay for me.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. And I agree with you. Like, it's probably going to shift once the economy shifts. I mean, right now in the US, unemployment is 3.6%. It's the lowest since 1969. So I would imagine that if that shifts to 10% or so, and we're in a financial crisis kind of environment, the work from home thing changes pretty dramatically. I feel bad for anyone graduating college right now because this is the best it's ever going to be for them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, and there's like there's 25 year old guys who just, I guess, the only thing they know is, uh, you know, a world of of 4% unemployment and work from home and, you know, work from home is in like do two hours of work and then make sure the mouse jiggler uh, shows you're active for the other other six hours. And it's like, I think that even, I don't even think it takes 10% unemployment for that. I think it just takes like 5% unemployment where it's just kind of like, Hey, like the only really kind of sector that's seen it so far is tech. Like tech has seen some layoffs, but other than that, like it just, you know i'm thinking about the company that that i retired from and it's like they're having problems finding people still i'm like they've done everything they've increased wages they've uh, like done what they can to of course that's ultimately like for the most part really all you can do is increase wages but uh, they're trying to find people and they're they're struggling and there's lots and lots of companies uh, besides them that are still struggling so i don't know i don't know what the answer is i just hope that we get a This is. i going to say. I hope we get a recession. But you should never hope for a recession. I hope that my office space stocks can hold on through this. And if they can't, they're only kind of. 2% 2% of my portfolio, anyway. So it's not yeah. the, the end of the
1: world. Yeah. And the read ETFs are pretty similar. Like I was thinking about the commercial real estate thing and I looked up VNQ, and it, it's, it wouldn't be the end of the world if the commercial real estate sector went away. And that's not going to happen anyway. So yeah, I think, well, I think and, you're onto something there.
0: Yeah. And I, I was going to say, like, there, you know, these office buildings, like there's there's kind of there's high quality sort of office and there's like kind of low quality office. And besides artists, I have, a, I have a relatively big position in the relatively, it's like 1% of the portfolio, but it's a dream office reach, and they own kind of like downtown Toronto real estate, and I feel a lot better about dream, oh, wow. because it's like, like downtown Toronto is the, like in Canada, it's like, it's like the equivalent of our Manhattan, right, like it's like I think that right. these buildings always have value, it's just a matter of just kind of like, being able to sort of ride this cycle, versus, you know, like suburban Winnipeg, I'm Definitely a lot more nervous about those than downtown Toronto.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good way to look at it. But yeah, and you're also right about the economy in general. It is kind of a sight to behold how well the labor market is holding up and how tight things are and the rest of the economy outside of tech. I mean, Jerome Powell, he's doing his best to try to make a recession happen to bring inflation down. And it's like the economy just will not cooperate. Like it's still so incredibly strong.
0: Well, and of course, you know, I think inflation is coming down. But you're right, the underlying economy is just, like, continuing to sort of roll. But at the same time, it's like, you know, you see things, like, he said, you know, Powell's doing his best to bring a recession, and you see the inverted yield curve. And, mm-hmm. like, there's sort of all of these things that are, like, kind of trying to tell you where it's like, hey, like, the recession's coming. And then you look at, like, you know, go for dinner or whatever. You try and call <laughs> a plumber, and it's like, there's a recession? Like, you know, I know. Like, I got to wait to get in the shitty chain restaurant. Like, so it's a big kind of sort of difference between kind of what, you know, sort of you're seeing sort of on the ground and what you're kind of seeing with, like I said, with Powell and with the kind of that commentary on the market. And of course, luckily for you and I, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of macro experts on Twitter. So we just get to uh, <laughs> just see their opinion and, and of course, <laughs> learn all about that.
1: Yeah. And they all have their prognostications and they know what's coming and. That's another thing. That's something you oh. have to kind of figure out over time as an investor, where you yeah, start to learn not such an easy game to play.
0: Yeah, and of course, we both, uh, we talked about this before. Uh, we both agree on on kind of macro expert on Twitter. Like, like <laughs> it's gotten to the point where there's someone who is just like, if I'm just seeing them, just like macro take after macro take after macro take, I'm just, I just quietly mute them and move on. Because it's like, you're not bringing any value to me. You're just reacting to what's happening. Yeah, right. I don't really see a lot of value in that. Like, if there's someone who can consistently predict macro, what are you doing slumming it on Twitter with the rest of us?
1: <laughs> yeah, you should be running a macro hedge fund and becoming a billionaire. You should be George Soros.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's a very famous Canadian investor, Prem Watsa, who runs Fairfax Financial, mm-hmm. which is kind of like the Canadian version of Berkshire Hathaway. Most of people listening probably have, have heard of it. And, you know, the problem with Prem Watsa is that, like, every now and again, every kind of couple years, he decides he's going to make, like, a macro bet. And, you know, like, he called the top of the mortgage market in, like, 2007. Like, you know, he gets it yeah. right sometimes. And then other times, like, 2019, he bets on, like, deflation. Right. Like, it's just, like, he gets it right sometimes. And gets it gets spectacularly wrong sometimes. And... The problem is, is that he's just gotten enough of them right that he, he's sort of like encouraged to to sort of continue. And to his credit, it, I was looking at Fairfax the other day, and he made a macro call with their fixed income portfolio. And it was all very, very short-dated duration as like kind of like in 2021, and rates were very low. He, he put it all in like kind of one to two-year bonds because it was a macro call. And, you know, he got it right to his credit, like this debt is maturing, and he's able to put it back to work at like higher rates. And people are excited about Fairfax because like the macro call was right for a change. And that'll be all fine and good until another year or two where he makes another one, he gets it wrong. So Prime Watsa, you know, who is one of the smartest investors of all time, gets it right about 50% of the time, what chance do plebs like you and
1: me have? That's right. I completely agree. Yeah. it's And one of the most uh, challenging things that can happen is when you get one of those right and you start to think, oh, I, I have a knack for this. Yeah.
0: That, that's exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. That's a, isn't that Steve Eastman uh, who just got 2007 right and has been like a bear ever since? Because congratulations, you got like, you know, you made like that one career defining call and he's just not able to Like, kind of move on. He's just like, yeah, I'm bearish all the time because, like, the one time he was really bearish, he he nailed it. And I mean, he's maybe really bearish all the time before that. I don't know. But just every time I see Steve Eastman, he's he's bearish.
1: Well, a lot of them are like that. A lot of them really buy into the philosophy that the Fed is inflating bubbles and all these bubbles inevitably collapse. And that was their thesis in the mid 2000s. And then it looked like that was 100% correct in 2009 and then they never really shook that and they've been bearish ever since and now they're all claiming it's an everything bubble and this is going to collapse and need to stock up on canned goods yada yada yada, (laughs) and i don't know i'm
0: I'm laughing that's always my favorite where it's like you know stock up on toilet paper and canned goods and uh it's like if the world collapses to the point where i've got to like guard my house with shotgun and uh you know kind of like make sure the roving hordes of gangs like don't steal my cream corn I, like then <laughs> i'm just gonna admit defeat at that point be like, you know what steve you won you know congratulations <laughs> like you got the last laugh here no no ultimately pessimists sound smarter than optimists yeah because it's like like there's just all this sort of data and the canadian real estate market is i don't know how closely you follow it but it's like People have been saying that the Canadian real estate market's been in a bubble for like 15 years, and mm-hmm. like 2008 when your market crashed, the Canadian market like dipped and then just kept right on going. There was like a month of panic in Canada with the real estate market. Like mm. that was it. It just like had this dip and it's like oh no, it's going to happen, and then just nope, just started heading you know up into the right again. And ever since then, like 2008 to 2022 was just up into the right. And mm-hmm. up into the right, and up into and the right, and everyone is just like hey, there's a bubble, there's a bubble, there's a bubble, and they just consistently got it wrong for 15 years. And then, of course, mm-hmm. 2022 happens. You know, interest rates go from you know variable rate mortgage for one and a half percent to I have a variable rate mortgage that we're paying like you know five and a half percent or something now. And then the price went down a little bit. You know, prices are down like kind of 10 percent from the high, and. Like, the bubble guys are like, yeah, yeah, see, see, I told you. And it's like, yeah, but you're stop clock. Like, you're just, mm-hmm. you know, you're right, like, once a day, or you're right once a decade. Meanwhile, the, the bull case was just like, hey, there's increased immigration. Everyone wants to move to kind of Canada's, like, six biggest cities. Like, you know, interest rates were low. Like, there's all these kind of bull kind of scenarios. But they didn't sound nearly as smart as... The bear case, which was like, "Hey, it's it's X times income and it's X times rent," and, and you know these are just also overvalued. So ultimately, the pessimists in the Canadian real, real estate market sounded smarter, mm-hmm. but they missed out on like a you know 300 gain or a 400 gain over the last 15 years. But they, then they're going to say they got it right by predicting the 10 uh, decrease at the end of uh, at the end of the the massive. Full market.
1: Yeah, the first time that was ever on my radar, the Canadian real estate bubble was probably around 2014. And I saw a chart of it and my initial reaction was, oh, that's a bubble. And uh, I don't know what percent Canadian real estate is up since then, but I would say that that was, that was a bad call. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's at least doubled since 2014, yeah. probably 150 or 175% since uh,
1: since
0: yes. 2014.
1: So then, how much does it have to fall for the people that were telling me it was in a bubble back then and showing me the chart, proving it was, allegedly proving it was in a bubble? Like, how much does it have to fall for them to be right now? Well, it sounds <laughs> about like fifty percent, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, and probably. I mean, happen. I,
0: I, uh, um, some of the REITs that I own are developing fairly aggressively in the Toronto market. You know, residential uh, kind of stuff, and I lose zero sleep over that. Like, it's just, hey, good. There's long term demand and. In Toronto, like it's good, like take advantage of that. Not like, what are you doing at the bubble now? Right.
1: And the other thing with the bubble talk, it's like you're going to get in the stock market, you'll probably get a 50% cut every 10, 15 years. In the real estate market, you'll probably get a 20% cut every real estate cycle. And to just, if you're constantly saying for 10, 15 years, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Well, okay some point you're right but to your original point you're just a stop clock
0: yeah and you miss the run-up which is the right. uh which is the powerful part like you know it's like and there are lots of people who are saying i'm gonna wait till uh, the market declines and actually it's toronto what we're seeing is kind of in, in january february a lot of these people who were on the sidelines for a long time waiting for that decline all of a sudden said, like hey the prices are down 10 i'm in versus like yeah but they were cheaper in like 2019 when you were still waiting but they were just waiting for that decline now that they saw it it's like they're in and you know so there's there's some of that kind of happening those people waiting for that to decline i've never understood that like it's like hey you want a house just buy a house because i you know don't think it's really an investment i think it's more of like a personal uh kind of lifestyle decision i mean i look at the you know, money I spent on my house and it's new and you know doesn't need a whole lot, but uh, you know it's like over time, it's like I know the money I'm going to spend on my house that the the you know profit I'm going to make on it is is not going to be nearly as much as what it appears because of all the ownership costs over the years.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. It's it's more of a consumption thing. It's more of a lifestyle thing. If you have the cash flow and can afford the home and you like it, do it. But don't try mm-hmm. to use it as a speculative vehicle to try to predict whether or not prices are going to go up. I agree with that. Yeah. Okay. So I think we can wrap up now. I think we had a pretty good discussion here. So is there anything you'd like to add? Uh, I don't really
0: think so. I mean, I appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to be on the podcast and it is my very first podcast. So hopefully I didn't embarrass myself, uh, too much, but, uh, You're awesome. I appreciate the, <laughs> well, thank you. And I appreciate the, uh, invitation and I appreciate getting the chance to talk to you someone who I've interacted with for years on Twitter and uh, kind of you know get to meet here for the first time that was a nice treat for me so thank you
1: cool and uh, what are the best places for people to find out more information about you
0: well I'm on uh, Twitter of course at uh, at Upwar capital and then I have a Substack uh, com or if you just uh, google upword capital you'll uh, you'll find that uh, go find it
1: there. All right, great. Well, thank you for your time.
0: All right. Thank you for uh, for having me. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.